Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruski, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to another full, exciting panel here at the Battleground Wisconsin, which means Claire Zauke, our Healthcare Director, is with us. Claire, good to see you. Thank you. Good to be seen. And Robert Craig, Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert, good to see you. Greetings to our radio and our digital audience. So... We're going to start this week talking about the just uh, it's been a, another one of those awful weeks uh, since we last recorded the podcast. Um, we had the, the horrific murder in Brooklyn Center, Dante Wright, and uh, we record Thursday morning. We've had four nights of, you know, continuous uh, righteous protest against what's been going on. Uh, as of this morning, the police officer has, has been arrested and has been charged with second-degree manslaughter. Um, and so I wanted to give our panel an opportunity uh, to talk since we have not had, had a chance since, since this happened. This is our first time getting together. Before I get your comments on, on that, I do want to put it in the broader context here in Wisconsin. Uh, this week, we also had um, news that the, uh, the police officer um, who shot Jacob Blake will also face no consequences. He's back, been back on the job, I believe it's since March 31st. And uh, also this week, DPI came out with, uh, after a review saying that the uh, Burlington School District has uh, created a very hostile environment for black students. So we have all of this going on. And uh, so we're going to lead with this and just, but want to start obviously with Dante Wright and um, give both of you an opportunity just for your, your initial comments and uh, we'll take it from there. But Claire, I wanted to give you uh, first, first opportunity to talk about this. Uh, yeah. I'm going to be honest. I don't know if I have very much to say that I feel like hasn't just been repeated over and over and over um, not just in the coverage of this incident, but in coverage of all of the recent incidences of police officers shooting, killing, or in the case of Jacob Blake, almost killing unarmed uh, Black folks in this country. And I, I think what's, um, you know, I guess what's different about this situation is that I think it could be really easy to fall into the trap of arguing that, you know, this officer didn't mean to use deadly force, that she meant to use a taser, and that this was, an, you know, a horrific mistake or accident. Um, and that really obfuscates the, the real issue, which is that, um, one, reaching for a taser in this situation still would have been completely unreasonable because we're still talking about... Um, an unarmed person who um, was not posing any threat and, and as far as we can tell right now, um, shouldn't have caused a police officer to want to reach for a weapon. Um, and the, the fact that, um, you know, officers are, whether it's trained or socialized or ingrained, whatever it is, just to, to see certain types of people as a threat more than others is at the root of this problem. And, and we can't allow ourselves to be dragged into an argument about, you know, gun versus taser accident versus not accident, because the fact to reach for a weapon, any weapon um, is uh, of course at the heart 
of the problem here. And the other thing I'll say is every time a shooting like this happens, um, I think about my, my friends, especially my friends who are mothers, who talk about what it's like to worry about their children being pulled over for traffic stops, um, especially folks who live in places like Milwaukee and have to travel to places outside of the, the city of Milwaukee, like if they have to travel to, you know, Waukesha where there are more jobs, for example, right? And then think about how likely it is that their children are going to be pulled over um, because they don't look like the people who live in that county or in that community. Um, and, and how every incident like this triggers another round of fear. Um, and so, so, so I know that there are a lot of people who feel this much, much more personally with, um, than I do. And um, I, am, I always try to put myself in their shoes so that I am thinking about this in a, human, in a human way. Robert? I think after grieving with the family and realizing how traumatic this is, not just for the family, but for every person of color who has to live in this society, uh, depending on their proximity, and a lot of folks who are not people of color who have empathy, right, serious empathy. Uh, there's some that are, you know, deny that, a whole political movement that does. We need to take a step back and understand why this not only keeps happening, why it's going to continue to happen. It's going to continue to happen because this is the way the system is set up. The system is set up to over-police people. The white majority in the society thinks they're dangerous. And that included this young man and to force interactions with that will that will tend to cause uh, much more likely to cause a fatal interaction because other countries simply do not have large numbers of police killings. There are years when Germany has zero. Okay, and that's a big country. And we have mainline Democratic politicians who are using the word structural racism and not thinking about what it means because they don't offer structural responses. We need to change the entire system of public safety and not rely on police. So I take a step back here. There's all sorts of things we can say. We'll never know the, the full truth probably about why she summarily shot him and this young man in the chest. But why was he stopped in the first place? because it is broken windows theory of policing that we interact with supposedly dangerous people over and over again to pre-detect crimes, which is unconstitutional at its core, whether right-wing judges will admit that or not, they won't. And he was stopped for expired tags, license plate tags, when the state of Minnesota is way behind because of COVID and issuing them. There was no reason to stop him. Then they had to have a violent interaction because they had a misdemeanor warrant on him. And then you add to that, of course, it was a training exercise. Those were young cops and she was the senior cop and they didn't know how to handle it. They were supposed to like, we're going to do a stop and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to rouse this young black man. I didn't use those words probably, but that's what it was. And so until we change that system and we stop spending most of our money on safety on police, which don't make us safer, and invest in all the things that make us safer, reduce crime, like serious mental health, crisis intervention infrastructure uh, that, that, is, that is not armed people, uh, for example, and uh, harm reduction and, uh, and, and, uh, and also reducing poverty and 
housing segregation, and everything else that stigmatizes people. The only thing else I'll add is it wasn't just her training that made her fear Dante Wright. It was the implicit bias that white people have in this society by being born in and living in this society or moving to it. And it's emotional, it's immediate, it's not a thought process. And if we're being honest with ourselves, um, all white people have it. It's a question of whether you have the discipline to deal with it and not act on it and recognize it, right? But it's there and it's beyond our control and we need an admission of that. But we're not making any of the structural reform uh, moves that need to be made and more training and how you use the taser and what side of the body it's on. None of this, this will keep going on. And, prote- and protesters are very angry and are, and, and are, and that causes a, that who caused the public safety problem in Brooklyn center that's happening night after night, the police and having police. It's not just this individual woman who caused it, the, the officer, it is our system. Unless we change it, we are all responsible. So this is on all of us for not uprooting this system root and branch and creating a system based on true equity and every life mattering equally and the lives that don't might like matter right now equally are black and brown lives, especially uh, if, you, if you live in a working class community, but also even if you're just you can be a very privileged African-American and still get caught up in this in the traffic stop because they don't make a distinction. Well, appreciate both of both of your thoughts on this. And uh, we're going to obviously this this issue is we're just swimming in this. And I, I, the systemic stuff is so clear. Before we go to break, though, I want to highlight um, the issue that's been going on in Burlington. And um, it's been it's been in the news on and off over the last few years, and particularly um, uh, the, the particular family's case in Burlington um, about the hostile racial env- uh, uh, environment uh, that DPI in their investigation and report that they released this week found out that um, we had a district that was essentially failing to report, investigate, or even respond to incidents for years on the Burlington School District. Um, But we got to take a break. We're going to talk more about this on the back end. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're talking about what has been going on in the Burlington School District this week. Uh, the Department of Public Instruction did a investigation and reported that uh, the district has uh, essentially created a very racially hostile environment. Claire, wanted to get your thoughts as a former school board member and someone who thinks intensively about this um, you know, uh, when it comes to education, um, but uh, your thoughts, Claire? I think um, anybody who... Um, has been, and I certainly cannot say this has been my personal experience, but I have friends who've had this experience and have talked to me about their lived experiences, um, at, especially at the university level, um, but, but certainly lower as well, um, that, that any student who's a student of color at a predominantly white institution, and I um, would categorize K-12 institutions as part of that, would probably not be surprised to, to hear that this has been the a lived experience of, of at least a few people um, in, in this district. And it's, 
uh, obviously a a problem. And um, if if you know these accusations uh, sort of pan out or these allegations pan out, and I, I tend to believe um, people who you know sort of report abuse um, as as sort of a default. Um, I would say that it, then it's a failure of district uh, leaders and and staff to have uh, failed to support their students. Um, the primary responsibility, obviously, of a district is to ensure that there is a safe and stable learning environment for all of their students. And if you um, experience harassment, especially racial racialized harassment, um, that is obviously going to inhibit your physical safety, but also your ability to learn. Um, and that's what kids are there for. Um, so this is something that um, the district should take really seriously. Um, and it's, it's important that it's getting some attention right now. Robert, you were just talking in the previous hour about a number of the systemic things in policing. Claire just mentioned, right, that there's probably a good assumption that a number of folks have this sort of experience in a number of districts, potentially like Burlington. Robert, your thoughts on this and particularly, like, again, this is probably going to need some systemic approaches to these kinds of situations in the way we, but your, your thoughts on this. Yeah, I, Look, one has to say that there's a lot of very overt, which used to be something that was frowned upon, but we now have a, a party and a movement of the right that justifying re outright racism, uh, that, that the overtness of this used to be, you know, something that, that was not tolerable in most places. So it's disturbing that it could be this long term, this public this many complaints and nothing be done. So it tells you Burlington is very problematic. But systemically, if you think about where Burlington is, it's, it's proximate it's a, a, to Racine, which has a large black and brown population. A lot of these areas, because of housing segregation, right, which is forced, okay, it was, it was created by government originally, and still and still enforced by structural racism and economic inequality that these are the these are kind of white flight suburbs and black and brown folks can tell you which suburbs in the milwaukee area are, are more dangerous to go in just because there are a lot of folks who move there who have overt uh, racial hostility and resentment and the, the far right not just the far right the whole party is is capitalizing on and building racial resentment as a political strategy. And then it comes out in these sorts of ways and hurts kids, right? And you got to wonder about these school board members. Uh, they probably are, I would assume, Fox News uh, viewers who watch the strategic racism of Tucker Carlson and Sean Hattie until I hear otherwise. And so you have to deal root and branch with the fact of how deep racism not only has been in our country, but still is, which is being denied by half the by the bit by you know one of the two major parties, and then you have to address it in a very fundamental way that undercuts all of structural racism. Okay, so otherwise, we're 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 we might make them stop being this overt, but this is continue to be people's experience, and this is another kind of segregation because. Black and brown folks who move into Burlington are going to move back out, right? And now everyone knows about this. So in a way, it's benefited those who have a lot of racial resentment in that community because 
it will keep them, uh, you know, overwhelmingly white. And it's, it, it's hard to believe that's not actually something they want, given that replacement theory that black and brown people are a threat to whites is now becoming predominant. And one of those new research from University of Chicago was one of the main motivators, if not the main motivator, of the people who went to the January 6th insurrection. And they were not working class folks. They were predominantly better educated folks. who So they were more like people who can live in outlying suburban areas like Burlington. I really appreciate uh, discussion on this. And we're, we're going to continue to to uh, track, obviously, what's going on in uh, Brooklyn Center. But this is this is an issue that uh, we're swimming in. And it's a stomach issue. And we're going to continue uh, talking about that. But we need to switch topics. Uh, we have to talk about this. <laughs> we are in it. Continue uh, to remind everyone we're in a pandemic. And uh, the big news uh, currently is we have both a strains uh, of COVID that clearly, and we talked about this last week, are spreading and they spread quicker. They seem to be spreading more amongst the youth. Uh, And we're in a race against vaccination. And the big news this week is while we are at about a quarter percent here in Wisconsin now are double vaccinated, uh, which is, you know, it's good, but it's still not even close to where we need to get. Uh, we had the Johnson and Johnson vaccine this week be essentially after the CDC ruled uh, uh, that uh, we should be concerned. Every state pretty much pulled it. Uh, and I wanted uh, to get uh, all of your comments on this because this pause is a, a, a big deal, especially given I talked about those vaccination rates and our this critical effort to try to get people vaccinated and build public support as opposed to fear. Uh, but yet we also want to have full transparency. So you're sort of in this dynamic. Claire, why don't you, uh, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the latest news around COVID and particularly this uh, Johnson and Johnson news. I actually, I have a lot of thoughts, but I actually want to hear what Robert has to say first. Cause. Uh... Okay. Doctor. Well, I'll just, I want to preserve time for Claire. So I'll just say that I think it for the pause idea here is it's apparently standard in public health and they do it with vaccines all the time. And you really have to begin to wonder whether our public health establishment is up to thinking about the politics of this and the inordinate situation we're in, because it doesn't cause panics with lower level vaccines that aren't this political. But now when you have, frankly, a political party spreading and, 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 you know, a very high rated, you know, cable news program and others that are worse, trying to get people to fear vaccines, right, as part of their strategy, that it just feeds into the idea they're dangerous and don't take them. And it is a one in a million. It is expected that the trials aren't big enough to find a one in a million effect. So it, it is seven million doses and seven people. Okay. And so from a cost benefit in a lot of other vaccines or a lot of drugs, you hear all the uh, all the warnings they give with every drug the pharma industry is trying to peddle on television. This is much better than than those. Right. Uh, but the question is whether they thought through how to handle this. But then, in fact, I think the public health experts in general in covid have really been exposed for not having a serious idea uh, that that works to handle public communication when you have 
partisans with a huge amount of capacity who are trying to undermine the science and benefit from that. And so you have that problem. Then you have the problem that we have a fourth surge going on, a fourth wave. And it is ramping up now in over a dozen states. And Wisconsin, is it's increasing in Wisconsin. Once it starts increasing, it's going to continue. So it's a very dangerous situation. I understand why they did it, but it is more likely to be hit by lightning. I'm not using that as a, a, a poorly chosen metaphor. You are more than likely than one in a million to be hit by lightning. Do people not go outside anymore? I see lots of people outside. Even when there's a thunderstorm, you see my point. Claire? Yeah, I agree with Robert. I agree with everything he just said. He was going to make a lot of the points that I was going to make, and I only have like a couple extra ones that I will make, but um, I know we're getting close to the time that we need to take a break. And with that, we're going we're gonna to go to break. When we come back, we'll get uh, Claire's responses to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine pause. But you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are talking about the pause in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And uh, Robert had, before commercial, laid out a number of uh, excellent points around the concerns in the pause, but also why the pause. Claire, you were, before we had to go to break and get an opportunity, just to add a few more thoughts and points that you had related to the pause. Thanks, Matt. Uh, my my greatest concerns are the ones that, that Robert laid out, right, um, which is that folks who have anti-vaccine sentiments will wrongfully and harmfully jump on uh, the, jump on this news as criticism of vaccines or COVID, in general, but COVID vaccines uh, in particular, and that it can be really, really hard to unring, unring this bell, um, especially when um, the, the scientists haven't conclusively said that all of these blood clots that happened are specifically because of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And even if they are, it's such a low risk that uh, you know, with monitoring symptoms and, and everything, like it should be sort of manageable, um, and the benefits of um, receiving the vaccine just so greatly outweigh um, the risks of the vaccine. Um, so I agree with all of that, um, and I'm really concerned that it's, that this is, issue is going to get sensationalized in a harmful way. The other thing I'll say is that there are a significant and tremendous number of benefits to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine specifically, especially from a health equity perspective um, over the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, because uh, one, it doesn't need to be um, deeply frozen and transported in such cold, extreme cold temperatures as um, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Um, two, it only requires one shot, not two, so that um, it can be more easily um, handed out to people, uh, especially in uh, like lower income areas or rural areas, um, places where the population either isn't as as dense and people have to travel like really far to get to a place where they can maybe get a two dose vaccine or in places where there's like healthcare deserts, right? Like maybe in like urban or low income communities um, where it's like hard for people to find transportation or take off work twice to go somewhere to get a vaccine, right? You can just, because it doesn't have to be frozen and only need one shot, you can like put it in a mobile clinic and take it out into the community and hand out a bunch of vaccinations and be done, right? 
On top of that, third, it is a much, much more useful tool for fighting the pandemic globally than the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And as and we need to be thinking in the United States about the fact that the pandemic won't end here unless it ends globally. And at the rate at which we're going, because sort of big pharma has so much control in the United States over their uh, pricing, they can extort massive amounts of money from countries that need to buy the vaccine to vaccinate their citizens. And in the United States, where we have a relatively wealthy federal government, the government can afford to buy all those vaccines for the entire country. But there are horror stories of um, countries like, I heard a story about a country in Central America where Pfizer wanted them to put up like military bases and embassies as collateral to be able to buy vaccines. I mean, it's just, they're so expensive. Um, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, because it's only one dose and can be like handed out to, to people sort of more quickly is a more useful tool. They've also made a commitment to sell their vaccine at a lower price, which I'm not giving them a ton of props for because they've done a lot of bad stuff and they got a lot to make up for. And it's not like they're just giving it away like they should be. Um, but they have made a commitment to sell it to poorer countries at a lower price. So like, it is an incredibly valuable tool, this specific vaccine for fighting the pandemic globally. And I'm really concerned about it getting a bad reputation and hindering our ability to tackle the global pandemic, not just what's happening in the United States or Wisconsin. Claire, I'm really glad you mentioned that because that was the first thing I thought of when I heard that they were shutting this down. I'm like, well, Johnson & Johnson is the one that everyone was banking on that was going to help us get into the more challenging areas for all the reasons you mentioned. Um, Robert, any further thoughts you have, particularly around Claire, Claire's excellent point about the, the just the, 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 the predatory pricing of the pharmaceutical industry at this critical time, which quite frankly, is criminal, just <laughs> Robert? Yes, and I think we should have our national expert on this from People's Action, Toby Chow, who's leading the campaign on this, uh, Toby to Chow. So we'll see if we can get him on in a future Battleground Wisconsin. So Claire is completely right that first, the pandemic doesn't end if we don't end it globally, because not only is obviously the ethical, some of us actually care what happens to low-income folks, who have nothing to do with, with causing this virus, right? All over the world, predominantly black and brown folks. If we wanna say black and brown lives matter, which we do here. And then it's gonna cause a lot more mutations that go around our vaccine. So we will not be safe folks, period. It is, but we're not getting that through. And part of the reason we're not getting that through is because there is a whole political movement that took over a the whole political party, the Republican party, which is dedicated to convincing you otherwise and to using this for political advantage, for power, for themselves, period. But second, it's even worse on the price gouging than you think. We have a moral obligation here. We're killing people. Here's why. It was the United States in the 80s under Reagan, under the 90s, uh, under, under Bill Clinton, that forced into global trade agreements intellectual property rights for pharmaceutical companies at behest of the pharma lobby before the 1980s and, and into the mid 1980s, as I understand it, lesser developed countries, third world countries could manufacture their own because they didn't have intellectual property rights and places like the WHO and, and nonprofits, NGOs would help them 
and they could therefore have a very cheap vaccine in Zaire, in uh, in Costa Rica, in uh, in a lot of countries that can't afford vaccines. Uh, Costa Rica wouldn't be one of the poorest. Honduras would be much poorer, for example. And now they can't because we force that in international trade regime. We also have the power to suspend it. And it's not even being seriously discussed outside of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So we have an obligation to suspend their intellectual property rights during this pandemic. Trump wanted to set it up. So we spent the money on the vaccine development and they got to have this monopoly. And that's the problem with all prescription drug prices. It's even more deadly when you look at the, the pandemic. And it's not, only, it's not affecting us very much, but it's deadly across the world. And that, even if you don't care about them, and this audience does, but others, if any trolls are listening to us, it's going to come back to bite us too. I would like us to slightly adjust our attention, but COVID related to what's been going on in the state legislature for the last week or so around uh, the COVID relief bill. Uh, just yesterday, the Senate passed their COVID bills and also a number of election bills. All of these bills are going to get vetoed. Um, but I wanted to give both of you an opportunity to comment on them. And in particular, right, just the, the, the hypocrisy of these Republicans, you know, there was, there was zero Republican support nationally or anywhere for this relief bill in the first place. And then to try and hijack the money for things like tax relief and stuff that's not even legally allowed, uh, it's, it's just, it's classic. But again, it goes back to the politicization of this pandemic. Robert, I don't know if you have any thoughts on uh, what's been going on in the legislature before we go to break. I'll just say uh, very quickly that, look, they don't want to govern. This is a party that likes to destroy things. That's one of the reasons former Republican minority leader in the U.S. House, Bob Michael of Illinois, retired in the mid-90s. The whole new generation just wanted to break things. And so they wouldn't. They tried to undermine Governor Evers' pandemic response at every turn while offering nothing by themselves. But now they want to want that they've used every piece of power they have. Now they expect Governor Evers to give them the power to spend the money that they don't have. And they want to spend money they were against. And it does remind me that a lot of uh, Republican members of Congress voted against uh, the rescue plan, then on a dime went to their back to their constituency and started bragging and taking credit for parts of it that they voted against. It's all politics. It's all power. And it's incredibly regressive. I'll just give one example of how horrible this is. They want to do $2 billion worth of illegal things, right? They aren't even allowed by the rescue plan. This is the law and order party, law and order party, allegedly. And one of them is to give a 10% across the board tax break off of people's property tax bills. Well, you know what that means? That means someone with a $150,000 house, well, someone without a house or a renter gets nothing, but it's someone with a house who's moderate, who's just middle class, $150,000 house, will get $400, right? And someone who has a $600,000 house will get, let's see, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, $800, it's $1,600. So let's help the people who have the nice houses in the suburbs who vote for us. Robert, Period. The, Robert, they, the Republicans have been very clear. They've stated that they believe 
property owners have suffered the worst in the pandemic. They flat out said it. And that's part of why they're doing this, which is just, it's unbelievable. People, try to people in McMansions and on the and, and on the and all the shores, various places, and with a second and third houses and nice swanky areas, they really need the help. They need rescue during the pandemic. Not the lower income folks, the bottom fifty percent of the income scale that are in a depression. And they're still in a depression. And with that, though, we've got to go to a break. We're citizen action. Welcome back the battleground of wisconsin you can find us at citizenactionwi.org so we had some big news this week in our 2022 election that's oh, did i say that i just did the 2022 election we're barely into 2021 that's right folks the u.s senate race is going to be a big one here in wisconsin uh, for all the reasons we've talked about what's been going on at the federal level, uh, the Senate is the hottest and most important uh, congressional place, and we have Ron Johnson up. We have talked about that on the show a number of times. We're going to continue to talk about that because the big news this week is state treasurer and Citizen Action Co-op member Sarah Godlewski said, ah, <laughs> I'm jumping in. Uh, this is, uh, we, we got to get rid of this guy. Uh, Claire, this is big news. We're, well, it's not even May. <laughs> it's not, barely spring. We, we had our first 80 degree day a year ahead and, and Sarah's in. Uh, this is big news. It's good news, I would say. Shows this race is going to be hot. Your thoughts? Yeah, this is definitely good news. Uh, I think regardless of whether Ron Johnson announces he's officially running for re-election or not, uh, this is gearing up to be... Uh, one of the most progressive fields we've ever seen in the state for a, uh, a state level race. Uh, I'm really excited about that. Uh, Sarah is uh, somebody who I think has the uh, the technical know-how, the the policy chops to be a U.S. senator. She has the values to be a progressive U.S. senator. Um, and I think she has a personality that is really relatable and approachable to a lot of folks. So I think she'll be a, a great candidate, um, somebody who I know uh, Citizen Action will uh, likely engage with over the course of her campaign. I mean, as we will with all of the candidates, right? I'm not trying to like single Sarah out, right? But I'm sure that I'm sure that uh, we will um, have opportunities to engage with her over the course of the next year. Um, and I also think it means that more broadly, um, having having her in this race, um, in addition with, um, and I will give Tom Nelson some props, he has been out on some really progressive, he's, you know, he was the first candidate who announced he was running, and he's been out there talking about some really progressive stuff. He's been talking about Medicare for all, um, among other things. So I think having at least two candidates pushing a progressive message um, continues to make um, progressive policies and uh, narratives be become more mainstream and and not just sort of like fringy things that you know the progressive candidate who's uh who's running in the race is the only progressive um talking about right it becomes like mainstream conversation and discourse in debates um in commercials in videos like the one that sarah put out so all of this i think is very very positive uh for for our state and progressives in particular 
And you, you, you mentioned uh, Tom Nelson. I will point out so far. Also, Alex Lazary has uh, jumped in the race. Uh, Robert, your thoughts on uh, the, the news of Treasure Godlewski jumping in? Well, as a disclaimer, she is a Citizen Action of Wisconsin uh, organizing co-op member, our member chapter system in the Eau Claire area, our Northwestern Wisconsin co-op, and uh, tells us she was quite influenced, it has been by that experience. And working, in fact, with our former organizer, Jeff Smith, now state senator Jeff Smith, that's who recruited her into the organizing co-op. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think she it's amazing how she both led the campaign to save the treasurer's office. They've removed most of its authority and she's made it highly relevant uh, just by no policy, know-how and chops and leadership. And there's a lot more power in the U.S. Senate that she could dig into that isn't being used a lot of the time. There's a lot of power senators have that they don't use. So she'd be very good that way. And I want to say Claire is completely right that the whole spectrum has moved left. And that has been going on uh, for a couple decades now, gradually, and especially since 2016. Uh, but it, it's reflected in polling that the progressive, part, the Democratic Party is more progressive that's been since the 60s. It's been a huge and surge in progressive opinion. There's a huge surge in progressive organizing. Joe Biden relied upon uh, progressives in order to be elected to be his field team. And as a result, that is why he is so close to progressives in Congress. You see, when you help elect someone, then it really is a, a relationship like that. And so now it's a little problematic because if you have candidates that have never supported Medicare for all supporting it or candidates that you're not sure whether they really support not giving corporations free, ha free tax credits anymore unless they're specifically doing things like creating jo documented good jobs and not outsourcing, which is something that we've called for forever, you have to start sussing out, are they just running left because that's public opinion, the Democratic Party, or are they actually going to do that in the U.S. Senate? And so it actually raises the bar because a lot, a lot of the major things progressives have fought for for years are going to be run on by a lot of the candidates. But you need to suss out which one is going to really push that agenda effectively in the U.S. Senate. And then, obviously, we have to think about who's best to beat Ron Johnson. But I think a lot of times our voters overthink that and become their own uh, kind of uh, living room couch pundits. And that's very, very dangerous. I think the candidate that excites people, that excites our base and turns people out, is the, and, uh, is, is, is the one that would be most effective. And we have other candidates yet to pull the trigger two of whom are also organizing co-op members, our member chapter system, and that is Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes and State Senator Chris Larson, also with very, uh, very fine progressive credentials. So this is shaping up as an interest, a very interesting race, but a consequential race that'll be the, one of the, if not the uh, top uh, U.S. Senate races in the country. Yeah, look, I think, uh, Robert, you mentioned uh, who can who, who can beat Ron Johnson. Uh, I'm just going to suggest I think anybody can beat Ron Johnson right now. And I think uh, it, because of what you mentioned, this is going to be uh, one of the top races, which means there's going to be a lot of resources for whoever wins this primary. And so, like, as progressives, it's a huge opportunity because, you know, whoever gets through and if that could be a great progressive leader, right, they're going to have a lot of resources to take on Ron Johnson. And I think that combined with a real visionary, 
you know, idea about how we're going to continue to change this country is the, is the magic recipe. But we're going we're gonna to continue to watch this U.S. Senate race, Robert mentioned. We expect there'll be a number of other candidates uh, and we'll talk about them as they come in. We will have, we'll, we'll have them on as we move forward. And of course, uh, Citizen Action uh, of Wisconsin will have a robust uh, endorsement process that will allow folks to participate. But I also wanted to mention uh, a little bit something about Ron Johnson this week. Uh, news broke that this guy's going to actually be on stage with an activist who uh, thought that the January 6 riots were staged. I guess that's probably not shocking that Ron would appear, given that um, Ron Johnson didn't think it was even an armed armed uh, event. I don't know if either of you have any thoughts on this, but it just seemed Matt, uh, rather, I, rather Matt, appropriate, as she announced. <laughs> and Matt, I believe, often touted possible gov- gubernatorial candidate, former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish. Was she not also at this uh, event? Well, that is that is also correct. Uh, but uh Ron Johnson being there, it's just, um, you know, it fits in with where he's been headed. So, but. um, And I would say that, in fact, that was a big part of Sarah Godlewski's um, uh, commercial or not really commercial, her introductory video for her campaign. There was a whole section of it where she was like, I obviously think that this was a bad thing that happened. And Ron Johnson thinks it was not a bad thing that happened. Immediately, (laughs) This news breaks. And I'm like, yeah, great. This should I think this should definitely continue to be part of the narrative for the next year. Like we cannot allow people to forget uh, that Ron Johnson took this uh, the stance. I'll say one thing. It shows, and Ron Johnson got the Donald Trump endorsement, that he has a base strategy, energizing their base. So we need a candidate that will excite and energize our base. And if we try to tack to one that is inoffensive, we lose those races. And we have too many political strategists, well-paid, who work in some 1990s paradigm that think that it's just not true. We need the, we actually need the most progressive, most exciting nominee to go against someone who will excite and bring out their base the way Trump did in 2020 in Wisconsin. Well, I want to remind our listeners, this is going to be an off year election next year, which means turnout will not be what it was for a presidential. So that matters. It matters a lot, whether you have someone who can energize folks who don't often turn out in off-year elections. Um, and I, you know, we believe that's a good, strong, full-throated, uh, progressive uh, vision. Before we wrap up the show, there's been a, a lot of, there's been a lot of good work being done around climate equity in Milwaukee County. And there's an update as of yesterday, Robert, I wanted to give you an opportunity to update our listeners before we leave on what's been going on. Well, we've talked about how it's exciting that uh, Joe Biden and his progressive allies were able to pass the most far-reaching emergency response in the American Rescue Plan that we've seen from a president at least since the 1960s. But now a lot of the money comes down to the state and local level, and there's a real question of whether we will use it in exciting ways. And it was a huge step. We'll have more on this moving forward. Uh, Milwaukee, the city and county of Milwaukee have a climate and economic equity task force between the two to to advise them on how both to respond to climate change and meet the international targets and to improve economic equity and racial equity. And they just voted out a really bold plan to use American Rescue Plan money, 
Milwaukee's getting 400 million. Every community is getting a lot in Wisconsin. You can get your number uh, a lot of, to use a big chunk of it for that purpose and create a whole ton of jobs. Start uh, that building the whole the whole uh, capacity to, and lowering greenhouse emissions, and also reduce racial disparities by setting up the structures to employ folks locked out of the economy. A lot of African American men who are not employed in Milwaukee and are locked out of the economy, former con- uh, incarcerated people, but a lot of other people as well. So we'll have more later. But other communities, really, in your local community, if you're not in Milwaukee, step up. We need to be as exciting and bold as Biden and our and his and Bernie Sanders and, and all of the progressives in Congress just were with the American Rescue Plan and use that money well. And with that, we have got to wrap up this battleground, Wisconsin. We want to thank our producer, Brian Wildrich, who makes it happen every week here out of the Milwaukee shop. And hopefully we'll all be back in the office. Folks, go get your vaccinations. Encourage your neighbors to get vaccinated. We need to vaccinate everybody. We'll see you next week here at the Battleground, Wisconsin.